This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. My guest today is Dr. Robert Davis. Uh, he is an award-winning health journalist. Uh, he's appeared on multiple shows, CNN, PBS, WebMD. Uh, he is host of The Healthy Skeptic, which uh, we're going to talk about, and also an author. He's written several books. One we're going to talk about today is titled Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. In addition, he serves as president and editor-in-chief of Everwell, which we'll ask him about that, but they produce and distribute health-related video content. He's a Princeton graduate um, with a master's degree in public health and um, has a PhD in health policy. Anyway, looking forward to what he has to say. So, Dr. Davis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you, Greg. Thanks. Well, all right. Well, before we get you know started on your book, uh, just kind of tell me how you got into all this, uh, as far as the healthy skeptic and and you know this um, this Everwell, which uh, talks about you know just kind of health related stuff. Uh, how'd you get into all this? Yeah, well, you know, I've devoted my life to um, uh, health-related media, basically. So that is using various media, particularly television and video, to help educate people about all kinds of health and wellness topics and help them uh, become essentially savvier consumers when it comes to health. And to do that, I've drawn on several things. I've drawn on my own background. I have a passion when it comes to personal health, fitness, nutrition, something I've had a lifelong interest in. Also, as you mentioned, I have an academic background in public health and epidemiology. So I try to bring that to bear as I look at studies. So I, I spend a lot of my work actually looking at a lot of the claims. And we know there's so many confusing, conflicting uh, claims when it comes to particularly nutrition and wellness. And so I try to uh, look at those claims and look at the science and figure out what does the science actually show versus what we're hearing. And so uh, that's the work that I've done uh, in, 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 as a healthy skeptic. That's my brand. Uh, and I, under that brand, have done several books, as you mentioned. Uh, last book, the previous book was on exercise. The, this book is on weight loss. And then also I create a number of videos that I appear in. And what I do is actually they're short videos. And I basically tell, take a claim. Is it really true that red wine is good for you? Is it really true that uh, keto diet is a good way to lose weight. Whatever it is, I take the claim that things that people are hearing talking about and try to break down the science and help people understand what's true, what's not true, and what's somewhere in between so they can make better decisions for themselves. Well, that's great. Uh, well, I love it. I'm a fitness guy myself and I'm, I'm you know, kind of scrolling through your website uh, and I'll mention this again at the end, but um, for those listeners, it's uh, the healthy or just healthyskeptic.com. And you've got all kinds of information on there. You've got videos and, and articles. So, uh, you know, encourage everybody to, to check that out. So before we get into your book, tell me maybe some of the, uh, the biggest 
I guess, myths or surprises that you learned about as it pertains to health and wellness that maybe you, you have on your website? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Well, you know, one, I mean, there are all kinds. I mean, things that we hear all the time, for example, uh, you know, we hear this idea, and this is a common one, that you have to drink eight glasses of water a day. Everybody needs eight glasses of water a day. And, as a, and that's an example where I, I've sort of delved into science or tried to and figure out, okay, what's the scientific basis for this? And the truth is that uh, there's not, there aren't really good studies showing that there's something magical about drinking eight glasses of water a day. Now, there are good, there are good reasons to stay hydrated, and we all need to focus on staying hydrated. But this idea that we need to fixate on drinking, uh, you know, eight glasses of water, everybody needs that. Um, I think what, what a lot of studies would suggest is that there's certain people and for certain reasons, we can get into specific reasons of people prone to kidney stones, older people need to focus on drinking more water. And again, we all need to get enough water, but uh, there's a lot of sort of hype around this idea that if you drink water, it's sort of a panacea. And if you drink eight glasses of water, it will sort of do all kinds of magical things. So that's just one example. Another example I might give you would be this idea, and it's similar in the, in the fact that it gives you a very specific number, 10,000 steps. We hear all the time, you need 10, everybody needs to get 10,000 steps. And I looked at the evidence for that. And what I found is it really, it traces back to the 1960s when a Japanese maker of a pedometer came up and the name of the pedometer translated into English is 10,000 steps meter. The reason 10,000 was chosen is because that's sort of an exalted number in Japanese culture. But that took hold that 10,000 is sort of a magical number. And that people, and, and again, that's great. If that motivates people to walk, they should do that and, and aim for 10,000 steps. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. But the point is that when people uh, fixate on that number, sometimes what will happen is that in some cases they can get 10,000 steps, but they're the wrong kind of steps, meaning they don't walk briskly enough, or it's important to get at least 10 minutes at a time and people don't do that. Or in some cases, if you walk briskly, you can get fewer than 10,000 steps and actually meet the official aerobic recommendation. So the point there is, yes, if 10,000 motivates you, great, but there's nothing magical about 10,000 steps, just as there's nothing necessarily magical about getting eight glasses of water. Very good. Well, okay, well, let's get into your uh, book a little bit. And so Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. So you first talk about pick your villain. And so you, you kind of go into maybe some of the different diets that are out there. Uh, so, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, this is a sort of a mainstay we see in weight recommendations and diet culture. That is that weight uh, can be boiled down to a single villain, whether it's fat, you know, we saw for years, it was the 1970s, 1980s, mm -hmm. people who remember, you know, uh, it was all about fat, eat fat, get fat. So if you cut back on fat, then you'll be able to, uh, you know, uh, regulate your weight. And so what, what happened was, of course, we know those who can remember the market was flooded with all kinds of low fat, no fat products and sort of Snackwell's cookies became the, you know, the ultimate example and people sort of, you know, over consume those products. And what happened? We saw that people not only didn't lose weight, but they actually gained weight. And we ended up with an epidemic of diabetes. Uh, and, and people continue to argue why that is. It's a lot of reasons, but a lot of people would attribute it to sort of the low fat craze and people eating more and more processed foods that were marketed as good for you because they were low in fat. We go from that era to what I call the Atkins era. Dr. Robert Atkins came along and said, it's all about carbs, cut out carbs. And so we had various iterations of the low carb diet. And that again, we have the market flooded with all kinds of low carb, no carb products. And when you do that, you have to add something else. Uh, and so in, in that case, it was fat in some cases, which may or may not be a problem. But the point is that, uh, and again, these were processed foods. And then since then, we've seen other villains identified, whether it's 
uh, fructose or whether it's uh, gluten or whether it's whatever it is, uh, you know, glu uh, 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 the paleo diet, you know, foods that our ancestors didn't eat. So the list goes on, but the point is that we see this pattern recur in diets, which is to say uh, we have we, we, these diets that will pinpoint a particular group of foods or constituent foods, which is allegedly responsible for obesity. And the truth is that it's far more complex than that. It, it, it is not about one particular food or group of foods. It's about the overall quality of our diets. That's what really matters. And yet we see over and over uh, this tendency to identify specific villains. And, and, and it's understandable. I mean, it's people are looking for a simple solution. Uh, we all want simple solutions. And we say, oh, if we just cut out these foods, we'll lose weight. But I think again and again, people find that this kind of approach does not work, certainly in the long term. And that's why we see people continue to regain the weight that they lose if they, in fact, lose weight in the first place. Dr. Robert Lustig, I had him on my show a while back, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yep. he wrote a book and, and you know, he's more into the processed or as far as, you know, processed foods being what's what's making us unhealthy, right. what's making us overweight. Um, do you think that's more the culprit rather than, you know, because it sounds like you're not maybe suggesting that it's carbohydrates that's making us fat or certainly it's not maybe calorie excess. Do you think it's more the, cause you said it's the, the type of foods we eat. So maybe it's just more the, the processed foods or. Yes. Yes. And I think there's good evidence for that. And, and because these foods you think about, they're actually designed to cause us to overeat them. That's the way they're designed. I mean, it's sort of, you know, to be highly palatable and, and, and for the, we consume them rapidly and before we're really full and we have our satiation cues kick in. And so that's, I think there's a, there's growing evidence that that's a big problem. And we are a society that relies more and more on these kinds of processed foods. And unfortunately, many of these foods, as I said, are, 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 are marketed in a way to make us think that they're good for us. So that they use all these buzzwords, all these health halos, you know, uh, low carb, uh, gluten-free, organic, all these buzzwords are on the food. So we eat these foods thinking we're helping our health, thinking we're helping our weight, mm -hmm. when in fact, just the opposite is happening. Yeah. So I'm curious, somebody like yourself who researches all this stuff, when it comes to nutrition, you know, that's got to be one of the hardest things to research and find good quality studies because there's just so many variables. Um, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, articles out there, research, on nutrition or epidemiologic studies. And there's so many factors involved, like, you know, people who eat red meat, you know, they're saying, well, red meat causes, you know, cancer, blah, blah, blah. But also people who eat red meat, you know, are also probably gonna, uh, you know, they've been shown to drink more beer and they're also, when they eat red meat, they're gonna probably have the French fries and the Cokes with it. And so there's just so many confounding variables. So somebody like yourself, who's constantly looking at this research, I mean, how do you sort through all that? It's tough. It's, and it's a tough thing to do because there are all these factors you suggest on top of that. A lot of these studies, uh, they're the variables you suggest. A lot of these studies are funded by the food industry. They're funded by vested interests. So that, you know, I talk about in this book, you know, uh, examples of that where uh, people who make uh, the avocado producers will, will come out with studies and that show that avocados help you lose weight, supposedly. And you have to consider, okay, consider the source. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think what I try to do is look at what scientists call the totality of the evidence. And that is not relying on one study or just a few studies, but looking at the studies as a whole and trying to figure out what they show. But as you say, you have to look at variables like that and how well, you know, a lot of the gold standard, for example, is when you have a randomized controlled trial, when you randomly assign some people to say, follow a particular diet and other people to follow a different diet and compare them over time uh, with regarding the outcome, whatever it is. 
And, the, and, and often that's not possible. Often it's too expensive, it's just not feasible or it's not appropriate for whatever you're studying. And so you have to rely on observational studies, the kind you're describing, where you just follow people eat what they eat and you follow them over time. But as you say, in that case, then you have all kinds of potentially confounding variables that you have to look at how well the researchers control for those variables. And, uh, and that's, that's important because they can try to control for everything they can think of, but often there are other things that weren't controlled for at all, or they maybe weren't properly controlled for. So I like to say that, you know, sometimes people will be cynical and say, well, I can't believe any of the research because it, it's all got problems and I'm just going to eat what I want to eat. I think that's the wrong conclusion because I do believe that science, though it is imperfect and though we have to interpret it in the right way, is the closest to the, the best thing we've ever had in the history of humankind to try to get us closer to the truth. So we have to rely on that because the people that came for, before us had nothing. They just relied on hunches. They relied on anecdotal evidence. They relied on opinions. And, you know, that can be fine, but that only goes so far and it can also mislead us. So I think we can't just throw out research and dismiss it completely and say, well, it's flawed and so we can't believe it. But I do think it's crucial, which is what I try to do, is to look at it in the right way, to look at it with not a cynical eye, but a skeptical eye. And then, as I say, to sort of not focus on one or two studies, but to look at studies as a whole, look at multiple lines of evidence and try to draw conclusions. One other point I would make is we also have to be open to changing our minds because that's the way science works. As, as we get closer to the truth, sometimes things will change and then we'll find that something we believe, for example, before we, we believed for years that, or many people did, that saturated fat uh, was close, was, was definitely causing heart disease. As we've learned over the years, it's more complex than that. There, there are different kinds of saturated fat, different kinds of saturated uh, of, of fatty acids, and they have perhaps different kinds of effects when it comes to, to, uh, to uh, your risk of heart disease. So I think things like that, as we learn more, we have to adjust our thinking. And sometimes that's very confusing and upsetting to people. And they say, why can't they make up their minds? They don't know what they're doing. But I think that's what we have to be open to as part of the scientific process, that as we learn more and gain more information from good studies and from the studies as a whole, then we're prepared to change what we believe and what we do accordingly. Okay, well, very good. Um, well, you talk about the calorie fallacy. I don't think that's probably going to be any surprise to my listeners. I've talked about that uh, on here before, but uh, talk about kind of what you found as far as calories are concerned. Yeah, what I found is basically calories matter. As I like to say, cal calories count. It's just a biological fact, but counting calories doesn't work often. And the, the, there are a number of reasons for that. One reason is simply it's just very hard to do accurately. You know, you, people can look at the no calorie number on a package, but even that number may be off. It's allowed to be off by up to 20% under law. So even that's not necessarily a completely dependable, uh, reliable number. And then on top of that, we know, you know, all of us have foods that we don't have calorie counts for, whether we eat at home, cook a meal at home, go to a restaurant, eat at a friend's house, go to a party. It's very hard then to sort of deconstruct that food. You, there are apps available, but it's really hard to do. So, so number one, it's just not knowing how many calories you're actually consuming. That makes it hard. And then there are other factors, though, that are really important beyond just the, the, the calorie number. Um, genetics matter, right? I mean, we know every, we all know people that can eat whatever they want. They never gain an ounce. There are other people that eat very little and gain weight. And so our genetics vary. And there's studies that show, twin studies that, that really show that the, the extent to which genetics matter, how, how we put on weight, uh, how the number of calories we consume actually affect our weight. Um, it, there's increasing line of research regarding our microbiome. That's the sort of gut bacteria and how that affects how many of the calories that we consume are actually absorbed, that matters. So that, you know, it's not just what we consume is what we absorb. And so that we're learning more and more that research is in its infancy still, but how that may affect our tendency to gain weight or not gain weight. Um, and also that metabolic effects, how, how our bodies compensate 
uh, for uh, the number of calories we consume and for losing weight. So as we consume fewer and fewer calories and lose weight, our metabolism actually slows down. So the body burns fewer calories. And so it, it requires fewer, you have to cut your calories more and more and more to maintain that weight. And often these simplistic formulas about, you know, eat less, move more, um, what they don't take into effect is how the body is actually responding to what we're doing. Because because our bi biology essentially fights us. It's an evolutionary gift to keep us alive in case of you know, uh, scarcity or famine, but uh, or starvation, but it actually obviously is a problem when we're trying to lose weight. So. All these factors are a problem. And then, and then I just say one more thing, and that is when we fixate on calories, I think it can cause us to make unhealthful choices, choices that aren't in our best health with regard to our either our health or long-term weight management. Just to give you an example, I mean, people will look and see, oh, well, I see the potato chips, the low-fat potato chips have fewer calories than the nuts, so I'm going to eat the potato chips. Well, that's not a great choice because the potato chips are high in refined carbohydrates. You're going to eat them. You're going to, you know, be hungry 30 minutes later, they're not going to be satisfying, they're going to cause a spike in your blood sugar. And then if you eat the nuts, though, even though they may have more calories, that's going to be more satisfying. And that's more likely to keep you full. So there are many examples like that, where I think just fixating on calories uh, can be misleading and make us and cause us to make food choices that are not the best, not the best choices. Yeah, well said. Uh, so you mentioned eat less, exercise more. Uh, of course, you know, everybody's heard that. And so kind of the next chapter in your book is about exercise. So what, uh, what do you say, or what does the research say about exercise as it pertains to weight loss? Yeah. So I, I, you know, it's, people are surprised when I say this because I'm an avid exerciser. As I mentioned my last book, Fitter Faster is all about the science of exercise and all the wonderful things of things it can do. I really believe it's the closest thing physical activity is to a fountain of youth. It can do everything, you know, from lowering your risk of heart disease and cancer to helping improve your mood, improving your sex life, reduce your risk of colds, all kinds of things. And I always say, if there are a pill that can do all the things exercise can do, we'd all be clamoring for it. That said, unfortunately, the thing that most people look to exercise to do for them first is to help them lose weight. And that's the one thing that exercise doesn't do so well. Um, and the reason is simple. It's just the kind of exercise that most of us do, whether it's going for a brisk walk or a bike ride or taking a yoga class, all of which are great to do for your health, um, don't burn that many calories. And so when people look to those things to actually lose weight, they often find that exercise doesn't help them. Now, one thing that exercise can do is it can help you keep weight off that you've lost or help you from, keep you from gaining weight in the first place. So exercise can be effective for that with regard to weight, but actually helping you lose weight, um, it, it's not so effective. And, and what is, I think, a real problem is that people go into an exercise program, they join the gym, they, they gear up to do the exercise, they find it doesn't work, they find, at least with regard to weight loss, they find that uh, it's, they're frustrated, and so they give up. And so I think the problem is that we set up exercise up to fail by expecting it to help us lose weight, when in fact, we should be looking at exercise in a completely different way. And that is to help enhance the quality of our lives. Is it going to make us feel more energetic? Is it going to make us feel less stressed? Is it going to help us sleep better? Is it going to help us deal better with screaming kids, whatever it may be to look to, to how exercise makes us enhances the quality of our lives. And if we do that, we're more likely to stick with it, as opposed to looking to exercise as some kind of tool to help us lose weight. But unfortunately, that's the way the sort of weight loss culture has taught us to think about exercise. So I, I preach a lot for people to try and build muscle, especially as we, we get older to maintain mm -hmm. muscle, because I talk a lot about muscle being a very metabolically active tissue. Um, so it's going to, you know, burn more calories at rest and it's going to decrease insulin levels, you know, decrease blood sugar levels, uh, you know, things like that. And so obviously that's not an overnight thing to, to build muscle. And also I feel like it helps once you lose weight, 
to keep that weight off if if you have more muscle. Um, what what's your thought on that? I agree 100 percent. And that's something that I think, unfortunately, is given short shrift, particularly women. They think, well, I, you know, I'm doing exercise. I'm I'm walking on a treadmill. I'm going for walks. I'm going for hikes, which are all good things to do to aerobic exercise. But they neglect um, an equally important part, which is uh, resistance training. And so I emphasize that that both of those are crucial parts of a of an exercise program for the, just the reasons you say. And that's particularly important as people get older. Um, as we lose muscle mass, as we get older, just to, for, for sort of to be functional, to be able to get up out of a chair, to walk upstairs, to be able to lift groceries, just to, to do everyday tasks, to be able to maintain muscle mass. It's so important. And I think, um, you know, men, women, regardless of people's age, I say that everybody needs to be engaged in some kind of uh, resistance training. It's very, very important. For sure. Okay. Uh, so you talk about superfoods. Um, so obviously, you know, everybody thinks that we need to be eating these superfoods, uh, quote, superfoods. So um, what does the research say about, quote, superfoods? Yeah. So we, we all hear about, you know, specific foods that have supposedly magical properties. And I, you know, we, whether it's, you know, blueberries or salmon or, you know, acai berries, the list goes on and on and on. And with regard to weight, there are a number that are that people that uh, hear that uh, certain foods have certain magical properties when it comes to weight loss. And so I talk about a few of these. I mentioned earlier avocados. Uh, we hear about apple cider vinegar. We hear about um, chili peppers. We hear about coconut oil. There are a number of things like that that people are told, well, if you eat this food, it'll help you lose weight. And what the studies show actually is that a lot of these foods are perfectly good foods to eat. They can and should be a part of a healthy, weight-friendly diet. So there's nothing wrong with the foods necessarily. But the problem comes in when they're portrayed as having some kind of magical special properties. And if eaten in isolation, they will have some kind of special effects when it comes to weight. And what the studies show, um, I mean, I'll just, let's just take apple cider vinegar. That's one that's very popular where a lot of people hear, okay, I eat that for weight loss. And so there are, there are, there is some research and this gets back to your question about looking at the research. You know, how do I look at the research? Okay. You look at the research for apple cider vinegar, you find there's one human study that's often cited. And that's in small study that looked at people over several months, it was a randomized trial. They assigned some people to eat apple, drink apple cider vinegar. The other people got a placebo. And over several months, the people who gotten the apple cider vinegar lost like a few more pounds, three or four more pounds over several months than the people who didn't get it. So the effect was very small. But then on top of that, you have to look at who funded the study, which in this case was a Japanese vinegar manufacturer. So, so that comes into play. But then, okay, you say, okay, let's look at the other lines of evidence for this. Well, we don't have a lot more. We've got studies in rodents that show that uh, rodents are more likely or less likely to uh, put on weight if they're fed apple cider vinegar. Okay, well, that's an interesting hypothesis generator, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true in people. Then you have uh, some evidence, uh, human evidence that suggests if people uh, consume apple cider vinegar uh, it, with a high starch meal, their blood sugar is less likely to spike. Uh, and also that it, apple cider vinegar may decrease appetite uh, but again, in some cases, this was tied to an increase in nausea. So that's not necessarily a great way to, for people to lose weight. So the point is that we have a little bit of evidence, circumstantial evidence, but no really good, strong, direct evidence from several studies that show that actually consuming apple cider vinegar will help people lose weight. And yet it's portrayed in, on websites, in news reports, in all kinds of places by certain weight, weight loss groups. You know, consume apple cider vinegar. This is an important way to help you lose weight. And my point here is not to say you should never try it. I, I mean, but the point is that go in with realistic expectation, understand there's very limited 
human evidence to show that it actually will make a difference. And that's the problem, the disconnect between, a perfect example here, between what the science is and the kinds of claims we often hear. So uh, you talk a little bit about timing. Uh, you know, we used to always hear, you know, that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. And now it's trendy to not eat breakfast and, you know, do some kind of intermittent fasting or, you know, you hear people talk about just eating one meal a day. You know, what does the science show on maybe meal timing as it relates to weight loss? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting area, and it's one that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by because I think there is some emerging evidence that suggests that we may be able to have eating at different times may have different effects metabolically. That said, though, this evidence is still very much in its infancy, and it's very hard to draw any firm conclusions. And what's more, it's hard to know whether we can draw conclusions who those conclusions apply to because all of us are different. So, uh, for example, this idea of that, you know, we hear often that if you eat earlier in the day, you're, and there's some studies that suggest as people are less likely to, to put on weight if they eat most of their calories earlier in the day as opposed to in the evening. And so you, what, from that, you hear rules about never eat past eight o'clock or, you know, eat your main meal at noon and, you know, and, and eat very little at dinner, those kinds of things. And so my point here is not to say people shouldn't do that. But again, my point is to tell people, don't expect, again, this to be some kind of sort of magical approach that's going to help you, you know, shed pounds because it's just, there's not enough evidence to know it works. If you want to try it, great. But what I also tell people is if trying to schedule your meals results in your, you know, saying, I got to eat by five o'clock at PM and I'm going to, I don't have time to fix a meal at that point. So I'm going to go through the drive-through at McDonald's to make sure I get my meal in. That's not good. Better to wait until seven o'clock or eight o'clock when you can prepare a healthful meal than if it forces you to take steps that uh, are not, you know, that are not consistent with a healthful diet. So I think that it's an interesting area. I think that uh, we're learning more about, you know, the, the interaction between our circadian <clears throat> rhythm and our diets and, and where there might be an effect. But I think right now, when, if anybody says we know for certain that if you eat at a certain time or have, if you time your meals in a certain way, it's going to increase your chances of losing weight. I think they're overstating the evidence. Very interesting. Uh, so you have a chapter titled Bottled Bunk. Uh, what, what's that all about? Yeah, that's about our, uh, sort of fixation on mainly on dietary supplements to help us lose weight. Mm. You know, we have, there are so many of these supplements out there that purport to help us lose weight. And by the way, I'm not opposed to the dietary supplements. I think there are a number of supplements out there made by reputable sellers that can help with a number of things, whether it's fish oil, vitamin D, you know, all kinds of things that people take and that, you know, can be effective for specific conditions or specific needs. That said, I think when it comes to weight loss, though, um, there's very little evidence that any of these weight loss supplements really have any effect. And the problem is that, um, you know, weight supplements are not regulated the way prescription drugs are. So we don't know for certain that they haven't been tested for safety or effectiveness. They're, they're not required to be before they're marketed. Uh, and we can't even be certain what's in them because there's no way to be, there's, they're not regulated so that there's quality control. And so when people take these supplements, they are essentially taking a risk. And on top of that, when it comes specifically with, with regard to weight loss supplements, we see a number of them that have kind of a hodgepodge of ingredients. So it's not just, even if, even if there is one ingredient that has been shown to perhaps have some effect when it comes to weight loss, a lot of these supplements don't have just one ingredient. They have what's often, they label as a proprietary blend. So some kind of combination of ingredients, they don't necessarily list how much of each, uh, you don't know. And so you just assume that you just take it because you think, oh, well, this sounds good. And, and again, I think that people need to be aware that A, 
they, uh, there's no evidence necessarily that these help and it's, it could hurt just because it's a supplement, just because it's quote natural doesn't mean that it may, may, it doesn't have side effects. And so we just don't know. And so I just something I think that people need to be aware of. Uh, it's very tempting to believe if you go to the far, go to the drugstore and pick up a supplement or order on Amazon, this is going to be the solution. And particularly if you see uh, before and after pictures and ads and hear all kinds of testimonials. But I think my advice to people is to resist all that. And if they want to try it, then to go in again with eyes wide open and not to expect too much. So you're somebody that, you know, really studies the research, analyzes the research. And so, you know, you're, you're telling us that there's no one diet that that's, you know, that's the best that counting calories really don't work that superfoods, you know, it's kind of an illusion, Um, you know, that, that there's not any supplements that can, uh, help necessarily lose weight that exercise, you know, may not be the the answer to losing weight. And so people are, you know, I can see them throwing their hands up and they right. say, okay, well, right. Dr. Davis, what works? Like, yeah. you know, if somebody comes to you and says, okay, Dr. Davis, you know, in all the studies that you do, how do I lose weight? What do you tell them? What I would tell them is there's several things. First of all, to focus on uh, a diet that is a study show and overall, and again, these are, I think there's good re- evidence here from different lines um, of what's optimal, for, what's, what's good for optimal health. And that is a diet, a generally whole foods diet, meaning one that is, uh, emphasizes fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, uh, meats, uh, fish, uh, dairy, if you eat dairy, and minimizes what we were talking about earlier, these highly processed, so-called ultra-processed foods. What does that mean? Chips, candy, soda, uh, french fries, fried foods, sweets, that kind of thing. Now, notice it doesn't mean never eat those, because some of these restrictive diets we hear, you never, you know, always eat these seven foods and never eat those seven <clears throat> foods. And that's not what I'm saying, because that's, A, it's not realistic, and B, uh, it's not something that most of us, we don't wanna live our lives that way and say we never can have French fries again. I mean, so that's not realistic. But I think what is realistic is to look at the overall quality of our diets to say, okay, over time, and this is the key over time gradually, to eat more of the whole foods, the foods I just described, and to eat fewer of the highly processed foods. It's a, pro, it's a something, it gra- needs to be gradual. We can't do this overnight, particularly if you're used to eating a lot of highly processed foods but it's something that can happen over time. And I think what the studies show is that this kind of diet is, uh, is, is, can be effective for helping you maintain a healthy weight over time. And that's the key because it's sustainable. The other key though, is it's something that's highly, uh, it's adaptable. So it means that you can find foods within those groups that you like. So if you don't like, I, I, for example, I don't like kale, I don't like cauliflower, I don't have to eat those, but I can find other foods in those groups of fruits and vegetables, for example, that I do like, that I do enjoy, or and prepare them in a way that I enjoy so that I can find a way of eating uh, that I can sustain over time. So I think that's very important is to focus on the overall quality of your diet by focusing on these groups and trying to, over time, you can still enjoy these highly processed foods, but just to eat them on occasion in moderation, and that being the goal to reach over time. So I think that's, that's one essential element of, of what the research does show can uh, result in ability to, to achieve and maintain a healthy weight. Um, something else uh, I would say is obviously exercise, as I said, is something we need to do for the right reasons, but it can help with maintaining a healthy weight, not gaining weight, which is something that is crucially important here because we know as a society, we're gaining more and more weight all the time. And so just preventing weight gain uh, is important there. Um, something else I advocate is a food journal, a food diary. I think that is very, very important. 
because it helps us understand what our eating pattern is. You know, also often we just eat in ways we just, we don't even think about it. But I think what a food journal does is it helps you figure out, okay, what you're eating. And by the way, you don't need to record calories. Sometimes people get hung up on recording calories. I think that's not necessary for the reasons we talked about earlier. But I do think it's important to write down, you can put it in your phone and then transfer it later because it's easy to forget what you ate you know, this morning for breakfast, but just put in your phone and then also think about and write down how you felt when you were eating. How did you feel before you ate? How did you feel while you were eating? How did you feel after? What were you doing? Were you in the car? Were you with a bunch of friends? Were you at your desk at work? Um, What time was it? Um, How, you know, all kinds of other variables. So I think with that kind of information, the reason that's important to write all that down is that you can go back and look at that and maybe see some patterns. See that when you're stressed, maybe you eat this way. Or maybe when you're lonely, you eat another way. Or when you have certain emotions, you're an emotional eater, you eat you know, sweets, whatever it is. But I think that you can look at that information and with the arm of that information, then make a conscious effort to eat more mindfully and to focus on your eating patterns. And that's something else. I think that to have that kind of self-awareness so that you can work on changing your eating habits. Very good. So, you know, I'm curious to ask certain guests, especially you, because you, you study this stuff. Um, what your day looks like. So walk us through maybe, you know, a typical breakfast, lunch, dinner, what your exercise looks like. Do you throw in some intermittent fasting? I mean, what, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, a typical day for me is I always eat breakfast. Um, okay. And again, I, 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 don't, I say it's, it contradicts what I say in the book because I say in the book, we hear breakfast is the most important people. You have to eat breakfast. And what I say to people is if you're one of those people like me, you wake up and you're hungry and you want to eat breakfast. I always do. It works for me. But some people aren't hungry. They're not hungry till noon. And you shouldn't force yourself to eat if you're not hungry. And the studies actually show that this is a sort of a, uh, a, a, a misimpression people have that you have to eat breakfast. So I think that's it. So, but I always eat breakfast because it works for me. Okay. Um, and, and what I have for breakfast, I try to have some protein. So I try to have some protein at every meal. So I'll have some uh, egg, egg beaters or egg, uh, egg whites or sometimes eggs. Um, but also we'll eat uh, whole grain cereal. Uh, with, without any sugar, and then I'll add fruit to it. So I, I do that. Uh, and then for lunch, um, I'll typically eat either a salad or a sandwich, something light. Um, and then I have snacks throughout the day, typically nuts, um, sometimes nuts and fruit together for snacks. Uh, and then um, I'll sometimes have a protein shake because I tend to, I work out every day and I do fairly vigorous exercise. So I, you know, it's not great to supplement it too much, I think with these kinds of sort of artificial foods, but I find that for me, having at least a shake or some kind of bar uh, that's low in sugar will help me at least increase my protein intake. And then for dinner, I try to eat a healthful dinner, which is typically for me fish. I'm not a vegetarian, but I'll eat fish or chicken. I don't eat red meat uh, and, and a vegetable. Um, and, uh, and then I try not to, once I've eaten at seven or eight o'clock and try not to eat after that. Um, so, th- so that's my typical day. And I, I do exercise, I exercise pretty much every day. And as you said, I mean, I, it's very important for me to include not only aerobic training, so I'll run, I do, um, I'll do high, high, you know, high intensity interval training some days, but also to get, as you and I talked about, to get in strength training. So I do that three days a week as well, go to the gym or go outside to the park um, and do body weight exercises. But that's a, that for me is a crucial part. And then I also do other activities I enjoy. I hike with friends and do other activities too. Uh, just that I enjoy. So I, again, I try to get in something every day. Fortunately, I live in an, in a, in an environment in, in the West Coast where I can do that. The weather's good. But even if I didn't, I would still be inside or you know trying to do something every day. Okay. Uh, do you throw anything in there like red wine or other things that are supposedly healthy for you? 
Um, I'm not a big drinker, so I, I'll drink wine occasionally. Uh, but I, you know, I think that um, there's nothing wrong with that if people do it in moderation. But I have not. Uh, I'm, I haven't. You know, my my sort of approach has been I don't drink a lot to begin with, so I haven't necessarily increased the amount I drink for health reasons. So you said you you try to get a protein with every meal, but you don't necessarily doesn't sound like you calculate that to necessarily try to get, you know, close to one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Or do, do you look at any of that kind of thing? I, I sort of roughly look at it. I but I, you know, um, I. I, I, I don't I don't like to get fixated on numbers because I think that can be a problem. So I try to sort of keep an eye on it, just like I try to keep an eye on calories, but it's mm -hmm. not, I don't, I think it for me at least, and what I talk about in the book, I think it can become counterproductive and create an unhealthy relationship with food, whether when people start spending too much time, at least I believe counting whether it's calories or other or macros. And so I try to get have a general idea of how much protein I'm consuming, uh, just as with calories, but not necessarily keep a running tally. Yeah. Good enough. Uh, before we wrap up, anything else you want to throw out there about the book that I didn't ask you? No, you, you covered it all. Okay. All right. Well, um, so as we wrap up, I always ask my guests if they could give us one health tip that would make us healthier today. What would you say to that? Connect with a friend. No, good I one. Think, I think often people don't think of our connections with other people as part of health, but they are. We have multiple lines of evidence that show that the more we're connected to other people, the sort of healthier we are and the longer we live, the better the quality of our lives. And so I think that this is something that is important to me. And I would advise people to focus on that as part of your overall health regimen, your connection to friends, family, others in your life, and to reach out and, and, and maintain those connections. Yeah, no, that, That's a good one. Yeah. You know, studies show that anxiety, depression has gone up significantly in the last couple of years, you know, during this pandemic with quarantines and all that. So, I mean, I think that's just kind of proof of how important that kind of thing is. So, yep. very good. So uh, the book is Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. Um, and the website is healthyskeptic.com. I would encourage everybody to check that out. There's some really good content on there. Uh, and I assume, can they get the book from, from that website? Yes, they can get it through the website or they can go to Amazon and other online sellers. But yes, it's available through the website. Okay, awesome. Well, Dr. Robert Davis, we just appreciate your time and what you do and your expertise on this. Um, appreciate everybody listening and we will uh, talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com.